0: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into my podcast, My Time, My Life. Um, today, I am welcoming a special guest, my friend, Javier Ramiro Velasco. Uh, he is the founder of the 100% Agave Mezcal, Bishidu, founded in 2017 and made in Oaxaca, Mexico. Bichidu produces 10 expressions of ancestral and artisanal mezcal in small premium batches. Javier works in partnership with local farmers and their agave cultivation, harvesting, roasting, fermentation, and distillation processes. Strictly adheres to multi generational traditions and rich heritage that passionately lives on in the town of Sola de Vega. Before founding Bichiru. Javier earned his undergrad degree in mass communications from Emerson College, where we know each other from, Hey, and he truly believes in the school's philosophy that expression is necessary to evolution. He then went on to earn his master's in post-colonial English literature from Cal State LA. After graduate school, Javier worked in the TV and film business for almost a decade and ultimately found his purpose through teaching English to black and brown students, which he's been doing for two decades now. Teaching brings him stability, provides an intellectual challenge, and is a vessel for empathy and social justice. Javier divides his time between Los Angeles, where he teaches, and Mexico, where he creates his mezcal. Thank you so much for joining my podcast today, Javier.
1: Jeanette, it's always a pleasure to see you. (laughs) Long time.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. You have such a fascinating story, and I really love that you reconnect your Mexican roots through your brand. Yes, you do. And that you bring such passion to your students in your classroom. Let's hop on in here. So tell us why you decided to create a new Mezcal brand, and what did you think was missing from the market?
1: You know, every time I went out, you know, I fell in love with Mezcal about 20 years ago. And Mm -hmm. I remember that instance where I got lost on the road to uh, Puerto Escondido or the beach towns where all the tourists Mm -hmm. hang out. So I got stuck Mm -hmm. about seven hours away from that in the high mountains of Oaxaca. And, you know, uh, being who I am, I decided to take the the road less traveled. And I went into a little Mm -hmm. hillside town and I went into a palenque factory and I tasted what to this day remains the purpose for mezcal. Making something absolutely organic of the earth that captures both the heritage, but above all, the passion of each individual mezcal maker. And when I came back to the U.S., unfortunately, that flavor profile, that aroma, and that experience was nowhere to be found. And, and I said, a- I want to recreate that experience all the time if, if for nobody else, for myself. Uh, and that was there part of the reason that I decided to engage in this venture as a Mascow maker.
0: That is amazing. Um, and had you always had a, a vision for it before that incident? And was no. so, like? How did you manifest
1: this? I don't think it was a vision necessarily for mezcal. But since I was in college, I used to hang out with my buddy, uh, Jorge, in the dorm room. And we would sketch out images, skits, uh, book ideas. And the one Mm -hmm. thing that they all had in common was this longing, this nostalgia for a culture that we had left behind. And there was always Mm -hmm. such images of, mexico whether it's song dance food the way that we speak the regions etc we had a one uh, two person show in that dorm room for years and it's manifested through many of the creative endeavors i've had whether it's putting together cultural events uh pairing foods with uh mm-hmm. drinks and finally through this particular venture making mezcal perhaps a uh A coming together of all those uh, goals to express culture.
0: Excellent. And which dorm at Emerson was this uh, manifestation happening? Of
1: course, it was the one with ghosts, Charles Gate, (laughs) (laughs) on the eighth floor overlooking the lake or uh, the river, the Charles River. And Uh, we'd we'd hang
0: out.
1: Charles Gate. Yeah, yeah. it It was a wonderful time to be young. And, you know, college for me was a lot about. Uh, taking, you know, the the long breath from from family and uh, space that we needed to intellectually grow. And in my case, I think the, the creative spirits really kind of meshed. And uh, I think I've been living off those spirits for a very long time.
0: Right. There's no better place than Emerson to really um, do something creative. That's awesome. Um, how did you go about finding the farmers that you work with and the land on which to produce The agave.
1: You know, initially, uh, on one of those trips that I made down there, uh, I started to stray away from the the tourist areas, and I ended up always going back to that little town called Sola de Vega. And on Mm -hmm. one of them, we got an invitation from uh, a woman here who lives in Los Angeles. She's a doctor, Mm -hmm. alternative medicine doctor. And uh, she once brought some uh, mezcal, and it was that flavor. It was that flavor that I had longed for, herbal, (laughs) fresh, organic, and uh she said if ever you want to taste this when when you go down to oaxaca find my brother her brother turned out to be an architect uh an engineer i'm sorry an engineer who had long ago given up that world of public service and instead decided to become the foremost grower in one particular species of agave called tobala and he went to this little town and he taught the people how to grow these plants using a system that is actually goes back to our uh, indigenous heritage uh, the way the Aztecs uh, gave water or uh, doing a a scaled system of irrigation and he crafted the largest harvest of tobala so the man became renowned for that agave species and he became my friend and when I go visit him you know, he also enjoyed smoking some weed and he was just a man of books and he loved films. Mm-hmm. I would call a Renaissance, man. So I kept going back over and over. And then one day he said to me, hey, why don't you jump on board and stop coming down here and taking our mezcal? So I did. Uh, one minute to the next, I was uh, deeply involved in a, a project where we had a thousand bottles with no plan on how to sell it. Because we had no certification. We had no branding. We had nothing. We just had a thousand bottles of the most amazing miscellane and thus she wow. was born.
0: Wow. We have um, a lot more than a thousand now.
1: <laughs> we got
0: thousand
1: <laughs> we have ten thousand ten thousand. Um so you know and and then unfortunately the year after we purchased those thousand bottles, uh Luis Mendes uh, was the gentleman's name, he had a heart attack and he died uh, on his farm. And of course we had no idea what we were gonna do with this. And that prolonged our bringing it over stateside. But it also kind of allowed us to begin to meet the characters or the people that are now the dominant factors in our our, uh, processing. We found out that the people that made the mezcal for him were indeed the local farmers. And he had all these connections and relationships with them. So out of the woodwork, they all started coming out. And they would find me down the street. They would find me on the farm. They would find me everywhere. They're like, "Hello, I'm Naum, or I'm Gerardo, and I used to work with Luis Mendes, and we would love to work with you." And next thing you know, I started forming these uh, bonds, uh, going to their quinceañeras and their baptisms, and they started inviting me to many events until we formed these relationships that have now gone on for almost eight, nine years.
0: Wow, I talked about that um, forming relationships in one of my previous podcasts, and and how important it is, especially when you're traveling. Um, you know could be a bit out of your comfort zone or whatever, to be open to conversations with people and to actually try to form relationships because you just, you just don't know. And had you not uh, have the personality and the spirit to to do that and to be welcoming to people and stuff like, you know, perhaps you wouldn't be here doing your brand today. So that's incredible.
1: And it wasn't an easy journey. I mean, mind you, I walked into this town renowned for, a little bit of a dark side you know there there's 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 some violence in mexico and in this particular place it's not violence let's say against the government or narcos but it's town to town that are fighting over land rights for over 100 years and these yeah. skirmishes you know rise up at any given moment so a lot of the men are very skeptical about newcomers you know who are you what are you doing here and they walk right. around with what i call a charles bronson you know isquid, you know little drawl and they got black cats like this one, and they walk around <laughs> with their guys. So if you can imagine that scene, right, you know, walking in as an yeah. alley guy. You know, they smelled my extranjero or tourist vibe. But, you know, luckily I've been blessed enough to form strong relationships with people all over town now know me, and I'm not just an outsider. I'm just someone who comes in and, you know, hangs out and uh, does my thing. And for the most part, uh, the relationships have only strengthened over the years.
0: Right, right, right. Incredible, incredible. Um, so I know that you're a teacher as well, so you teach English, is that correct?
1: I teach uh, many types of English. I teach, uh, my favorite is the newcomers. So I have students from all over the world right now. We're inundated, of course, with Ukrainians, Georgians, Russians, all in one classroom. Uh, Of course, all of them fleeing the the conflicts. And then uh, we have a lot of economic refugees, uh, war refugees. Uh, from Africa, and then we have uh, Central Americans uh, from Guatemala and Salvador, Honduras, um, that are part of our system. And they are the ones that I think I've developed the strongest relationships with. Um, okay. And then my other group are my really, really fortunate kids, uh my AP students. I teach a seminar okay. class that focuses on college level research and critical thinking. Uh, we look at okay. things from multiple, multiple lenses and perspectives to I isolate global issues, local issues, and try to form uh, solutions to these problems. And working with those kids, I think, from both sides, uh, the newcomers and the AP kids, both creates a challenge for me in terms of how do I go about planning my day to engage students on vastly different intellectual depths, but also how do yeah. I find the empathy to engage both of them equally, you know, really targeting their needs and their, their specific, uh, I guess, objectives as students.
0: Uh, is, is there anything that your students teach you in the classroom that you apply to your entrepreneurship?
1: I think the number one thing that my students teach me is what sometimes feels like an absolute emergency or end of the world mm-hmm. uh, event is often not that big. And I'm learning yeah. to recognize that if we tackle the problems that we face, and if we're not afraid to, to face the issues that we're facing and the people involved, and if we're willing to unearth and dig deeper to find the, the, the deepest issue that's creating these feelings of irritation, these feelings of uncertainty, the feelings of fear, if we tackle it straight on, we're likely to begin to diminish it and find solutions. Whereas opposed to putting it aside, tossing it aside, or simply neglecting the issue will often compound it.
0: Wow. Yes, that is uh those are lessons that it would be very helpful if most business managers took into account every day <laughs> during the course of a normal work day.
1: Yes, you yeah. Know? And, I, and I've also and, learned the, the authoritarian perspective or approach to things will never work. You know, you wanna build right. you wanna build friendships, bonds, but above all you want to build trust. Um uh, right, authority.
0: right. And that's exactly what you've done in building your brand. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how do you balance your entrepreneurship with being a teacher? I mean, I imagine both of those disciplines are very time consuming um, and just puts a lot of, I guess, pressure on you. So how do you go up on that and how do you take care of yourself in that process?
1: Um, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm blessed with the wonderful company of my girlfriend, Wendy. Who really drives home the point of take care of yourself, take care of yourself, you know, uh, sleep well, drink a lot of water, uh, stretch. You know, I'm about to turn 50 years old and, uh, more than ever, the physical balance with the spiritual aspect of who we are is absolutely an integral aspect of trying to do the kind of things that we do in this particular millennium, you know, where our endless energy is of the spirit, not always of the body. So we have to make sure that both balance out. Uh, I probably eat more salads than ever. And I try mm-hmm. to sleep as Same. much as possible, uh, drink <laughs> water. But above all, planning, you know, recognizing, well, I'm at work. I started, I, I stay present to my students, and I don't think about yeah. work. I don't think about misconduct. But the minute I leave, I let go of my work. Whatever those issues were that occurred during the day, it's the past. I focus absolutely present on. You know, meeting clients, uh, developing our, our, our product, uh, making sure that social media is happening, uh, doing tastings, everything that I, need, that I know I have to do to gradually build and build and build and expose the greatness of our brand. It's about being present.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what is your key marketing strategy that you adopt?
1: I think right now what I did is I, I'm focusing on L.A. Uh, I'm focusing on okay. the major markets, uh, recognizing mm-hmm. that L.A. is probably uh, a godsend for me because it's booming at a time when people have already done a lot of the work. Other brands have introduced mezcal. Yep. Um, a lot of clients and people in general are more aware of the distinction between a, a industrial mezcal, a regular mescal, and a premium mezcal. And they, mm-hmm. I, they, they've done so much of the work that when I come in, I don't have to do very much except pour and let them sip. And they recognize that indeed it's a special uh, elixir, special spirit. Um, So my marketing is targeted towards those companies, those restaurants, those that already have something established uh, in terms of mezcal consumption.
0: Yes. And for the novices out there, and I admit I was one before I tasted your brand. What is the difference between tequila and mezcal? Are they commonly Uh, confused?
1: Yeah, so the the biggest difference is simple. It's just a question of of diversity. Um, Mezcal, uh, for the most part, is made with a variety of agaves. Uh, Right now, probably more than 40 agaves are being used from Oaxaca Mm -hmm. to Mexico. Whereas Tequila, uh, the ones that are ethically doing things, are using one agave, which is the Blue Weber agave. and. Okay. So all that does, it creates a particular flavor profile, and it's one. And then the other big difference is, of course, naming, right? So tequila was, uh, and, the, comp- and the, the industry of tequila was brilliant in doing much what champagne and other spirits have done, is they have limited their denomination of orange to, to a particular region. So therefore, that mm-hmm. only those spirits made in Jalisco, Guadalajara, and a few other states are able to be called tequila. And mm-hmm. mezcal is now only able to be used by those seven states that have been given uh, government right to be able to call it via heritage or proving that you have a tradition for making the spirit. And again, only those seven states, uh, it might be nine soon, that have that denomination of origin, uh, of, of origin can be called mezcal. Um, the other big difference I think might be in that Many uh, traditional uh, tequila makers are usually big in terms of uh, production. And most Mm -hmm. mezcal production is still small family made, Uh, at least in the better brands. But with this booming industry, I think we're going to start to see uh, larger companies start to come on board.
0: Yeah. And tell me, what is the best mezcal cocktail recipe? If tequila Uh, will own a margarita. (laughs) What do you say about Mescal?
1: Well I I think you can't I need to know
0: what to order the next time I'm out.
1: (laughs) You know, (laughs) one thing that I see as a trend out there is that if you love an old fashioned, yeah, try a mezcal old fashioned. If you love a Negroni, try a Mescal Negroni. Anything that you loved, put Mescal in it. It'll be that much better. Not to mention the next day you won't get that headache. All right. The 100% organic nature of agave makes your body break down these sugars, this is data, this is science, a lot easier than the other spirits.
0: Huh. So would you say Pascal is more um, complex since it is a variety of agave if tequila is just like one agave?
1: Far more complex. It's it's a given. It's a fact. You're... You know, for all of you foodies and aroma people out there that love complexity of flavors and aromas, mezcal can be anything from floral, citrus, spice forward. It can be rich in minerality. It can have, it can remind you of cotton candy. It can remind you of a day at the park, a walk in the woods, a rainy day. That's mm-hmm. what the agaves have because you are tasting the terrar, you're tasting the land of each particular region that's making this particular mezcal and it's their plants, and it's the soil that you are tasting.
0: Hmm. I need a bottle of bishiju here right now. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you ship? How can uh, people you know, listening, we, not we, in L.A., get their yeah. hands on your product?
1: We've just recently put our mezcal in a um, boutique uh, spirit store in here in L.A., in Highland Park and hopefully one in Studio City very soon, which will allow for shipping nationwide.
0: All right, okay, well, please keep me posted on that. I would be happy to promote that once that is ready to go.
1: Thank you, we appreciate
0: it. Okay, all right, um, wanted to also ask, where did you find the confidence to create your brand? And uh, I'm sorry, where did you find the confidence to take a risk to create mm-hmm. the brand? Because we all know, That anything dealing with entrepreneurship, no matter what kind, you have to be overly confident to even attempt to do it, really.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if it's even confidence. I remember in high school, I ran for student office. And I didn't really know anybody. And Mm -hmm. one of my teachers thought that I had good leadership uh, qualities. And, you know, for the most part, our school was run by a small percentage. I like to call it it was South Africa light, where like, you know, a certain group of kids or the white kids who were busting pretty much ran our school of 90 percent black and Hispanic kids. And I I, and I remember thinking about that. I'm like, there's something wrong with that picture. And I decided to uh, question the system. And uh, first I began becoming editor of our school newspaper, which was run entirely by uh, the white kids. And then uh, the yearbook, I got involved in that. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to take a stab at the student office. And I armed a campaign that was quite controversial, and I won. And I kind of did it out of naivete, but I knew the spirit there was one to be involved in, in, in a system that is usually run by, by privileged or at least by people that have the means to do it. And I think I did that. I've done that throughout my life. Um, You know, I tried Mm -hmm. to make a small film in Mexico and it was the same thing, you know, going up against a system where the government usually gives you the money and it's often for the few and the privileged. I tried to uh, start a, or I did start, we call it a music and food and entertainment company that we lasted for 10 years. And in a city that's run by entertainment, you know, uh, there was often a lack for our people for latin people latin events uh black people events and i started doing that often again with the spirit of giving access to those that often don't have access or aren't involved or aren't taken into account in our society and then i think teaching was a part of that you know taking that Mm -hmm. risk of of, of trying to you know uh, seek social justice and not just sitting around complaining about it but you know being an active participant in in making changes and, and Choosing to work at a school that had a great need for for equity, uh, yeah, and th- yeah, and I think my is a part of that. You know, uh, there's no doubt that there's massive conglomerates and companies mm-hmm. and influencers and people of, of of influence that are starting their brands with everything already at hand. And as as a Mexican uh, person, I think that it's my responsibility to try to promote this particular spirit from the spirit of, of Mexico, not from the outside in.
0: Amazing, and this is why we're friends i'll just I'll just throw that in there. I'll just throw that in there <laughs> and I'm, I'm
1: um, a little bit of a wild man. sometimes I just jump into things that i even thinking about. It. They've not always ended up well. <laughs> I'm talking about my real estate ventures at a different time
0: it's all It's all a journey, right and it all yeah. leads you to where you are so mm-hmm. no regrets at all uh has this been a fulfilling journey for you? You
1: know I used to They used to call me mr hollywood in in san diego where i grew up because i was always in hollywood events and gatherings and i lived in la which was a big no-no in san diego and (laughs) and then then, um i remember even in college my dorm room was the social center and we would hang out there you know be college kids and then later on uh uh, throughout my life my my home has always been a center for gatherings but mm-hmm. something happened along the way. When I started engaging in the mezcal business, you know, I no longer became the center, but it was rather the spirit of the mezcal that became the center. It was the stories of the people, the folklore mm. of Mexico, the the myths, all of the things that encompassed the spirit became the hosts for these gatherings. And for five to seven years now, I have been Coming to people's homes, we get invited. Uh, we do collaborations with chefs, with artists. Um, we throw major parties now, and it's no longer about me and my social needs. It's about the spirit and the nature and the history of the people of Oaxaca that are really the hosts, and I'm just a vessel for promoting that. Mm.
0: I think it's that's so powerful.
1: Yeah, there's a purpose now that's beyond yeah. me, greater than me. And I I think that it's beautiful And it satisfies my social needs For someone my age I go in there for a little while And then I go to get my sleep
0: (laughs) We all need our wrists in our 50s Yes (laughs) Yes, yes,
1: yes.
0: (laughs) Um, My last question that I have for you, Javier um, What have been the two biggest risks That you've taken in your life And how do they pay off Assuming that they did Um
1: you know one was not really my choice it was a risk taken by others you know when i was a kid i grew up in in mexico for a few years and my family sent me to san diego to get an education and uh it was supposed to be short lived uh sixth grade and then return to mexico um but when they asked me if i wanted to return uh you know my young self for whatever reason had the foresight you know that mexico was not place where i would be able to best uh i guess live a life of creativity and an opportunity and okay. i just i decided to stay and uh thus my life evolved in the united states and it was a risk and not without consequences you know the the distance between family uh all the emotional uh, issues that come with that, that the growing distance uh a distance from home uh culture country so those were major risks, which I wasn't aware of until later on in my life. I recognized the need to mend that. Um, mm-hmm. so, but overall, I have to say the risk was worthwhile. And I guess the second one uh, was becoming a teacher. Um, I, I had worked in Hollywood and the entertainment business for a long time, and I pretty much uh, wore out uh, that, that need for that world. And I was fatigued, and I had no idea what I was going to do. And I realized it was Mm -hmm. because I was draining myself. It was all self-centered. And taking the risk to become a teacher, to get out there and, you know, become part of the community or a community, I think was one of the greatest risks because it took away that energy from myself and allowed me to, you know, pour it into these young human beings, into into a system of education that is often neglected or places that are neglected. Uh, Mm -hmm. The risk has definitely been, satisfying. Uh, the risk has been worthwhile. And above all, it's filled me with, with, with purpose.
0: I can't think of a better note to end on, Javier. Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to do this today. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Trinette, I can see the beautiful dog in the back.
0: <laughs> that's her, uh, for those of you who can't see this, who are listening, that's Avery's um, uh, Warhol. <laughs> And and I'll just say, I did not make that. Uh, An old friend in New York made that for one of her birthday gifts. So, yeah, Yeah. that was before she got all her gray hair.
1: Yeah. I believe believe uh, there's a picture with Avery drinking a little mezcal.
0: Yes, she probably drank a lot of mezcal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As, As we say in Oaxaca. Salud.
0: Salud. Thank you, my friend. Tune in to the next episode of My Time, My Life. Take care. Bye.
1: Adios.